It's another beautiful Friday afternoon here in Nairobi. Welcome to this week's conversations around African stories brought to you by Yebo.live, home of Africa's history, biography, and discovery. I'm George Mutaro. In Uganda's political history, one name is conspicuous. Idi Amin Dada, military leader turned president. His story has been told countless of times in different forums. It's been immortalized in films and books. But what is the real story behind Idi Amin Dada? Was he evil? Simply misunderstood? Or wrongly famous? To help me unpack the Idi Amin legacy, I'm joined by Santana Muthoni from Semezane. I'm also joined by a leading investigative reporter, and uh, editor at the Nation Media Group Uganda, Raymond Mujuni. Welcome to the show, lady and gentlemen. Raymond, let me just start with you. What do you think most people miss from the Idi Amin story? Idi Amin had a legacy like all the other leaders. Um, it had its positives, it had its negatives. Uh, but because Idi Amin really went up against the global world order. That's, his prominence actually isn't the fact that he killed a lot of people. His prominence was that he went up against the global world order. And that sort of catapulted him into an arena where global world powers were playing out geopolitics within his own backyard. And it made him insecure as a leader. And that insecurity then led to the killings, it led to the deceptions, it led to the mass corruption, it led to the collapse of the economy back in Uganda. And this year was really one of those first years where we had the unseen archive of Idi Amin, uh, the national broadcaster, put together a museum uh, showcase for Idi Amin Dada. And you clearly see in the first three years of Amin's presidency before he ended up in this geopolitics play with Israel and with Islamic states, he really tried to move the envelope further in terms of infrastructure development. Um, the national referral hospitals, about 50% of them that are existing now were constructed during his time. Whether you talk about our national airport was constructed and renovated around his time to be an international airport and um, even the reorganization of the civil service. But what I want you to know is that Idi Amin came to power because there were, you have to understand the history of Uganda to understand why Idi Amin became a leader in the first place. So we got our independence from the Brits and that independence was negotiated largely by the Buganda Kingdom. And the Buganda Kingdom wanted a federal state within the state of Uganda. And, and that's something that um, the leaders of Uganda then were not willing to accept. So we sort of got into this unholy alliance as a country, um, Uganda Kingdom on the one hand wanting to be a federal state and the rest of Uganda existing as a state. So the leader of the Buganda Kingdom who was Kabaka, Edward Mutesa, then was made an honorary president and the prime minister who had the actual executive power became Obote. Now, mm -hmm. Obote, by virtue of coming from the North and being a, a leader from the North, wanted someone that wanted people close to him who he could trust. And that, that catapults now to the army that he recruited, um, a post-independence army, 
And Idi Amin Dada had come from the African Rifles, the King's African Rifles, and now was recruited as part of this army. He rose through the ranks pretty well, and he was a very disciplined boxer. He was a good marathon runner. Um, he was a jolly fellow, but not educated. Uh, but many people who interacted with him will tell you that he, he wasn't elite book smart, but he was elite street smart in the sense that he knew how to operate and run the streets. So when Obote and Mutesa had their biggest fight um, and Obote wanted to do away with Mutesa, what he did was send Amin after him. And Amin literally carried out a single man's job to do the most hated job, which was to exile a king of an entire kingdom, which had federated Uganda less than six years ago and given it an independent state and exile that king to, to, to London. So af after that attack happened, there was a lot of bickering between the Buganda kingdom and Obote, but this bickering never attracted geopolitical players. They always just watched to see what was going to happen. Now, because of that bickering, Idi Amin rises to the ranks and carries out what you'd call a coup d'etat, a coup d'etat that was bloodless because Idi Amin had a lot of support within the army ranks. And he becomes president of a country and the first act of populism he carries out was return the king who had died then in London, return his remains to Uganda. Now, the problem comes that after you become president of a country like Uganda, then you must, first of all, adjudicate local politics. And that's where Idi Amin's um, downtrod starts, that you have problems between the establishment of Buganda, which previously fought with Obote, now has the goodwill of Idi Amin, but saying, look here, we want to be a federal state within a state. And Idi Amin Dada knows that giving away such a huge chunk of the country through and, and allowing Buganda to be a federal state reduces his power immensely and reduces his ability to deliver on his own uh, ideas. So Idi Amin starts the national broadcaster, which is now called the Uganda Broadcasting Corporation. But he turns that national broadcaster into like an international state broadcaster to just broadcast state propaganda. And that state propaganda starts to anger Buganda Kingdom. But also he pivots the country away from its old roots of being a colonial British state into this sort of new Islamic state. So he was, he was a Muslim. So he, he tried to find a way of funding the local budgets and he didn't have tax revenue to fall back on. And by then the Islamic states were giving out a lot of money. So he tried to pivot the state into an Islamic state, which is what he believed at heart because he was Muslim too. And that pivot away then starts to expose him to geopolitics. And that's when the power play starts. What he realized is he was pro-West in the beginning and he had been, um, the, his meteoric uh, rise in, in the army and him serving in the King African Rifles um, had had the British also think of him as someone who'd be loyal to them. So when that shift happened and he was now working with um, the Soviet Union who were giving him arms much later, uh, what do you think uh, really caused this shift? The, the context is really economic and it has very little to do with the politics. It starts with economics. Now, an independent state like Uganda, having to negotiate at a world stage, would have to come from, first of all, a political standpoint. 
Then the world was trading with people based on blocks. Are you part of the communist block? Are you part of the capitalist block? Um, and that, that determined who you could trade with. If you are part of the communist block, then you could trade with the communist countries. If you are part of the capitalist block, then you would trade with the capitalist countries. Now, Idi Amin quickly realized that there were no foreign exchange earnings which were coming into the country. And in trying to get basic foreign exchange, just trying to jumpstart the economy, just trying to make sure that there's trade in the economy. He carried out very unpopular draconian things that had short-term wins, but very long-term losses. So one of those things is the famous fable that, that everyone has had that, you know, he dreamt one day that the Indians wanted to kill him and he chased them out of the country. So to get quick forex reserves, the easiest route out was to pivot the country as an Islamic country and sort of enter this Islamic block of countries that would then be funded by much more economically advanced Islamic countries. And, and, and that, that sort of exposed him because one, the, the local economy was still in the hands of Indian traders at that time. So when he expelled the Asian traders and replaced them with a very bad government policy, um, the distribution of the shops, for example, was given based on patronage and not based on ability to actually run a, a shop. Um, there were very few Ugandans who were educated who knew how commerce operated. So they didn't even know how to trade in shops. So they didn't know the basic books of accounts, uh, goods coming in, goods coming out. Just to take you back, um, because it seemed like from the onset, um, Idi Amin already had some sort of struggle. He was, he ousted Obote, who was from a different tribe. And during his reign, he was constantly afraid that Obote with his kingdom or his, his people will come and take back control. Um, and even after we see him still very worried that his, leadership is not stable. Lack of education not uh, notwithstanding, can you please take us through the tribal politics that made Idi Amin insecure in the first place? Because I think it's something that is very relatable in Africa today. Um, and even um, the last five, uh, five decades, that tribe has played a very, very key role in either making the king or sustaining power. Idi Amin Dada was the first post-independence president who didn't belong to any political party. So there's very little tribal mobilizing at the time, uh, but it was something that Idi Amin understood and carried out so effectively. Even by the time of his ouster, very few people actually ousted him because of his tribal politics. His biggest reason for the ouster was the collapse of the economy and the broad suffering it had spread across everyone and the government killings that had been executed, executing people everywhere. Thank you for bringing that out. And I think it, it really shows how insecure um, he was, especially with his rule. With this, I'd, I'd like to ask a question of what was super striking about his leadership style? Idi Amin Dada had a completely personal touch to leadership 
that had no grounding in any ideology whatsoever. And that's why people actually say he wasn't educated because he blurred the lines on, on so many things. So he had a capitalist look to the way markets should operate, for example, in Uganda, mm -hmm. but he had a communist look to the way politics should be structured. And mm -hmm. um, he had a personal touch to the way he ran government affairs. Um, many civil servants, my own grandfather inclusive, would tell you, he'd call you uh, late in the night and, and ask you things that were happening in your office and wow. things that had come through his intelligence uh, circle. So his intelligence circle would brief him on the people that you were meeting, the kinds of, mm -hmm. of information that you were sharing with them. And Idi Amin sort of neglected first the official documents, which were where government business was run to attend to personal mm -hmm. business. So you have anecdotes of stories of say, his finance minister who was Moses Ali, who says at one time, the country was struggling to raise foreign exchange reserves, but Ali's son was sick and Idi Amin sort of picked up the phone and instead of asking him about foreign exchange reserves was asking, how is your son doing? Did he see a doctor? I sent a doctor to your home, did he reach your home? Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. personal touch to leadership endeared him to so many of his civil servants that even in his final days, they were willing to defend him to their bloodlines. Probably because of his lack of education, he did not know how to properly articulate matters. And as you mentioned, he had loyal, loyal um, men in his inner circle, but where was the gap? I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Where was the gap? There, there were personal deficiencies that Idi Amin had and those notwithstanding, they contributed partially to his decline. And that, that of course was the fact that he wasn't well-educated that the way he processed and understood problems and the way he proposed solutions to them needed refining. But also in context, please remember this is 1971. This is global brain drain. At independence, Uganda had about 1,500 graduates. Um, you're running a civil service of about 20,000 people. You, imagine you don't even have 2% of educated people to be in civil service. But you're competing for these brains against Tanzania, against Kenya, against uh, uh, South Africa. You're competing for them against Mozambique. All these were countries which were sort of attracting people who had gotten these degrees from fancy institutions. But also half the education factor is people were split along their ideological lines. So you got your degree, for example, in London was based on the politics that you believed in. Yeah. Your degree in Russia came on the politics that you believed in. Um, if you even traveled to say communist China, you had to have some politics to believe in to go in that direction. And that affects the way when you come back, that affects the way that the state deals with you. So Idi Amin had, he had a fair civil service let's get back a bit to Amin's time in State House. Can you paint us a picture on how it was for him to be, to live in State House with all the women, um, that is all the wives mm -hmm. and all the 
concubines because I believe he will not leave state house to go and uh, and, and and have a girlfriend outside. He these girlfriends will be coming to state house. How was that experience? Um, this is the part of Idi Amin that surprises the most. So he was called. He was also called Big Daddy. Um, yes. Idi Amin had the, the name Big yeah. Daddy, and and that's because. Um, the daddy had two two effects. One was that he was really big and he knew how to punch his way around. But the other daddy effect was that he knew how to provide. He provided broadly to everyone that he liked. Um, so like he was I told big you, was, daddy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was he was pretty much a philanderer. But also, what you have to remember is that by virtue of being Muslim, he was allowed at least four wives, mm. and at the time of his death, I think he had already gotten three of three official wives that, that we know about. Yeah, interesting. Um, I want to get into media, but I'll let Santana go first. Um, how did Amin get elected as AU chair in 75-76? And did he impose or was he a darling to the African leaders? So I think that was quite interesting at that point in time when the, the AU was known as OAU. I think at around the same time, that's when Uganda was also part of the UN Commission on Human Rights. So yeah. how was so knowing his legacy, how, how was he able to navigate that? I don't think that it had anything to do with Idi Amin. I think that the mm -hmm. chairmanship was rotational and mm -hmm. that it had time for Uganda to assume that chairmanship. That's how uh, he became. It wasn't something mm -hmm. that they competed for in a vote. He became a darling of the media uh, from a very, very um, early time of his rule. Uh, I mean, Western media would come and cover him. Even the title Butcher of Uganda is because newspapers across the world, radio stations and TV stations would cover him. So please take us through how he benefited from media and how this was used to put an image of his rule. His interest in the media comes very strangely from his protection of Obote's regime. Mm. So when Obote assumed the presidency, Obote was prime minister first, which had executive power. But when he chased away the, the president, who was Mutesa then, he had to safeguard his stronghold on power. And Obote sort of trained the security around him to say that if any coup d'etat is going to happen, it's safer if that coup d'etat is not declared because then coup d'etats were declared on national radio. Once someone captured the national radio, they had captured the state. Yeah. So Idi Amin, one of his act, initial tasks had been to protect the national radio away from anyone who would come in to declare a coup d'etat against Obote. And Obote always feared that that coup d'etat would come from the Buganda kingdom or generals who are loyal to the Uganda kingdom. So Idi Amin had spent incredible amounts of time studying how the broadcaster ran and what they were doing. And he had dedicated incredible amounts of intelligence in understanding who spoke on TV, what that speaking meant in terms of boosting the public mood. So when he structured his own coup d'etat and his coup d'etat was as stilt and bloodless as you hear it. Obote addressed the parliament a week, left the country, went to Singapore. And whilst in Singapore, even his own, his own um, AD, AD de camp of, of Obote, 
sends him a note and says, look here, um, back in Uganda, a coup d'etat has happened. Um, you are allowed to return, uh, but only if you are going to be under Idi Amin Dada. And he went on national, Idi Amin Dada immediately, he first informed Obote, and then he went on to national radio and proclaimed his coup d'etat. So it became an important investment for him, for the way the media perceived him is the way the public would perceive him. And the way the public consumed information was through the media. So many Ugandans used to tune in to the Uganda radio and listen to what was happening on the Uganda radio. The only other alternative to Uganda radio was BBC radio. So he would have the Uganda radio run his praises and then he would allow in BBC journalists into the country and sort of take them around this whole state visit and grant them very incredible access to the president. Incredible access. Some of the pictures you see of Idi Amin have incredible access that you couldn't imagine. There's pictures of him swimming at, at the, the, the swimming pool at, at State House. No yeah. one could have gotten that without incredible access. There's pictures yeah. of him at a shooting range um, where he, he picks up this Russian rifle and fires and sort of misses his target. And then he picks up a British rifle and fires and hits the target and says, you see, the British rifles are better. And mm -hmm. this was important because for him, it was the way the public in the international community would also perceive of him. So he understood the role of the media in shaping national perceptions. He, he died on 16th August of 2003, and this time he was in exile in Saudi Arabia. What was the general mood in Uganda when this happened? The general mood was still a sigh of relief. Um, the mood that hangs over most of Uganda for Idi Amin is he was brutal, he was a dictator, he took this country down a path that it should never have been, and you can't erase that. We really appreciate you for coming this far and um, with us and really giving us insights because I think it's super important for we as Africans to really tell the stories because it is us who bear or have borne the effects of, of such leadership. And I think we are the ones who to tell those stories. And um, I'd like to ask, um, like, since like right now we're, we're currently fighting global pandemic, that is COVID-19. So where we've seen that the decisions our leaders make really define if millions of people live or die. So having talked about ADMN, what would you think, what do you think he would have done differently if um, COVID happened during his time? I don't even know how to predict, but we're lucky that things like COVID didn't it happen happened. at the time of Idi Amin because one, I, the amount of resources you need to dedicate towards say testing would just be so large and so phenomenal. But maybe to, to analyze it from the sense of how to deal with big threats to the state and, mm -hmm. and to your population. So the biggest threat to Uganda at the time was a military threat from Tanzania. And it was always there. Um, the Tanzanian army just wanted to march through Uganda and offer us a government. And the, the Nyerere just didn't understand that, you know, there were other countries which deserved their own sovereignty, in spite of the fact that he was carrying out this whole communist manifesto. So, Idi Amin Dada put up what you'd call a formidable resistance in terms of armed struggle 
to stop what would have been a biggest threat to his leadership in Uganda, but also a threat to his population. An invisible enemy like COVID-19 would have mm. angered Idi Amin more. We don't know how many civil servants down the road you'd have executed by now mm -hmm. out of a failure of getting basic answers. So maybe the, the, the stepping stones from his leadership that he offered us or even his missteps have offered us a knowledge of how to deal with uh, threats to the state and threats to a population and deal with them efficiently and, and actively. But also the other thing is Idi Amin Dada ruled not by consensus and pandemics require consensus. Yeah. And that consensus is built. You have to talk to your population and tell them to stay in their homes. Yeah. And it would have been faster for Idi Amin to pass a decree and say nobody should come onto the road. Mm. And his people would have enforced that. But yeah. it would have required consensus to maintain that lockdown and say, should yeah. people stay here for 45 days? That consensus yeah. would have had to do politically. And he didn't have yeah. the political tools to do that. This discussion could go on and on and on, but I look at my time and uh, we are strictly running out of time. Um, probably we could do um, la parting shot. Uh, probably we start with you, Santana. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what is your parting shot um, in regards to Idi Amin legacy, the yeah. life and times of Idi Amin? Um, listening to Raymond and also uh, how his contextualized Idi Amin's legacy has really brought out a new perspective, especially with what we know about Idi Amin, because as, as, I, as I earlier alluded to, is that so much of the history that we are taught Say, say in schools or what even we, we learn from our media is whitewashed. And, oh, oh, and of course, as there's a saying that says, um, the, one who, the one who writes the story is of course the champion of the story, yeah. right? So I think it's very important that you brought this perspective that many people really wouldn't have identified with because we've seen um, even his son saying, or even people in his family lineage saying that he was, he was a good man. And people would would think that, oh, you're saying he was a good man because he was your father, right? Or he was your uncle or this and that. So I think it's very, it's very important that even when we, when we are human, uh, viewing human experiences, uh, people are not one-sided, right? There's a good and bad to people. So it's how you're able to even navigate how you, how you, how you also commemorate them and um, their legacies. So I think it's sure. a really important lesson. Maybe for me, my parting shots is um, good intentions are not the only thing you need to run a country. And, and many mm. leaders just need to learn that. I mean, had the good intention of saying, let's control our economy, but he just had the wrong move of carrying it out. So yeah. I mean, legacy needs to be interpreted in together with other, other people's legacies. So it yeah. can't just be legacy audited alone every time people are audited. It, yeah. All the civil servants that fled Uganda have to be audited. I, I always bothered my grandfather about this, that you know you could have put up a fight, but you left. And, and it's understanding that you know he could have died trying to put up a fight. That's yeah. why he left. That understanding is important for me to know that, okay, you didn't put up a fight, you left the country because you could have died. And that allowed you to fight another day, to live another day, to put up a fight. 
Absolutely. And I have to agree from my end. I think Idi Amin was truly wrongfully famous. There's some incredible things he did and there's some pretty bad things that he did. But at the end of the day, he was just a human trying to figure out his way around this thing called life. Thank you very much, Raymond Mujuni and Santana Madoni for keeping us company. And do have a lovely weekend and stay safe.